Our reading is from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, page 887. Page 887. <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream apply to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. 
the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O King, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that the kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon? I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. The words were still on his lips when a voice came down from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 
and this dream of a tree. This is a remarkable uh, conversion. Here we have what at the time would have been the most powerful man in the known world, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conqueror of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Judeans and a good few others, a ruler who possessed absolute power, who could do anything to anyone, a promoter of pagan idolatry going over to the one true God. Now that would equate today with somebody with the supremacy of the President of the United States of America and the absolute power of the leader of the godless uh, North Korea converting to Christianity and recognizing wholeheartedly the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if such a ruler today were to withdraw from public life for a pretty lengthy period of time, although we don't know exactly how long Nebuchadnezzar was uh, well, mentally ill, um, we don't know what the word for times and seasons might be, but the seven is a, is a word in the, old, in the number in the Old Testament which is associated with completion. So it was long enough to do what the task God needed to do in his life. So we would know that somebody had withdrawn from public life and then return with a mega shift in public policy. We would all know that. Even if it were somewhere as secretive as North Korea. So it's hardly surprising that some people today question the historicity of this event, usually on two grounds. The first is that there isn't a mention of this in the annals or the wall carvings in uh, Babylon. And secondly, they might question the psychological plausibility. Would such a powerful and ruthless ruler crack up quite so easily? So first, the historicity. There are records in antiquity, quite independent of the Bible, about Nebuchadnezzar's early years as ruler, but there are none for his later years, at least not produced by the Babylonians. So it's not surprising that we have no record of this event at this time, when in fact we have nothing from that particular period in Babylonia. Whatever the reason is for that, it is perhaps not surprising that the court officials would have kept things quiet at the time, in case, of course, it destabilized the empire. If they thought there was a vacuum at the top, all these different countries which he had conquered might decide, ah, our opportunity to revolt. And of course, many of the records in those days would have been in papyrus and would have been unlikely to survive very long. There is, however, a quotation from... Megasthenes, who is uh, a Greek historian and diplomat who is noted for his book on Indica, which is India, where he was a diplomat for the Greek king in about 300 BC, which is about 150 years after these events. And in his history, he writes, Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace was suddenly possessed by a spirit and after foretelling the end of the Babylonian Empire, suddenly disappeared. Now this could be a distortion of the version of the true account which we've just had read in our chapter. 
The other challenge is the psychological plausibility. Would such a powerful and ruthless ruler really crack up? I find that quite interesting. Could such a man who has created this empire from such a small beginning, at a terrifying speed, and had controlled it successfully for decades, have the kind of constitution that would make him vulnerable to mental breakdown? I don't think we have to be a psychiatrist to be aware that mental breakdown can, of course, strike anyone. It's probably down to how much pressure you can put somebody under. Obviously, some people are temporarily, temperamentally disposed to go under at the slightest increase in pressure, whereas for others it would take a massive amount. But I suspect no one is immune. There are apparently two kinds of pride. The first is the pride of the egoist. He has an extraordinarily strong sense of self to the point that he is completely indifferent to both the praise and criticism of others. He lives his life without reference to anybody but himself. Now we can probably think of examples from history, politics, business that come into that category. That kind of egoism is very mentally resilient, but it's also very rare. The other kind is far more common, and it is the pride of the narcissist. Now, Narcissus, in Greek mythology, was a youth who fell in love with his own reflection. Psychologists observe a similar kind of self-obsession, in fact, many would argue that it is becoming a characteristic feature of the 21st century personality. It's characterized by an extraordinary weak sense of self, which causes people to be pathetically dependent upon the approval and esteem of others. While they often do project a powerful impression of self-confidence, this is, in fact, nothing but a psychological defense against their true feelings of inner helplessness and vulnerability. Such people frequently indulge in grandiose fantasies about their own omnipotence, but they are hypersensitive to criticism. They are incredibly introspective. If they begin to feel their popularity fading and their fans forsaking them, then their whole personality can implode into a state of acute depression and paranoia. Narcissists, unlike egoists, are incredibly fragile. And though they may frequently be stars who revel in the limelight and possess consuming ambition to get to the top, they are, they are inwardly all too vulnerable to mental breakdown. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was of this second type. The surprise is not that he succumbed to it, but that he recovered from it. Now, dreams. It's not surprising that God communicated through Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. His dreams were the repressed fears of a powerful man who is haunted by morbid premonitions of the collapse of his empire. 
the more powerful he becomes, the more paranoid he becomes and the, about the possibility of the whole thing crashing down around him. According to psychiatrists, dreams of falling are common among those given to delusions of grandeur, as Nebuchadnezzar clearly was. Though outwardly at ease in the comfort and security of his royal fortress, during the hours of darkness, the secret fears of his subconscious mind began to take shape in the surrealist symbols of his nightmares and reduced him to a state of acute anxiety. There was no valiant, but they had their version of our psychotherapists, their interpreters of dreams, their magi. It wasn't total hocus-pocus. They recorded dreams, and then they noted how they subsequently worked out. So if you presented them with your dream, they would look up in their textbook, and they would find one that was similar and share with you how it had worked out for that particular person, that case. There was a tiny morsel of scientific method being attempted. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Before we examine what happened to him in more detail, let's pause. Imagine that you are a Jew in exile in those days. Your religion has come to be accepted, but you're still largely on the margins of a pagan nation. You're far from home. You're powerless to return home. How would you read this? What word of comfort and security would this Daniel chapter 4 bring to you? Well, would you not realize afresh that however powerless and alienated you might feel in this pluralistic pagan society that you've been dragged off and uh, dumped in, that actually your God, the God of your people, that he was able to humble the greatest and turn them to himself, that your God was in ultimate control. That may have increasing resonance for us in our time and place too. And on a personal level, it may be that like Nebuchadnezzar, we are turned to God in our darkest moments and we find that he is there. King David found that a contrite heart God will not despise. Well, just as his breakdown was a long time coming, so was his coming to fully-fledged faith. Now, you may have noticed as we looked through the book of Daniel, that, uh, um, which covers quite a period of years from where we started in chapter 1 to where we are now, how over those uh, previous three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has been drawn closer and closer to the true God. At the start of chapter 1, he is absolutely nowhere. By the end, he is very impressed with these Jews. In chapter 2, Daniel got his chance to explain about his God some more. The king had been troubled by a dream. Daniel, by divine revelation, not only knew the interpretation, the meaning of that dream, he actually knew what that dream was without Nebuchadnezzar or anyone telling him what it was. 
And the king is, of course, very impressed, particularly with Daniel, but also with Daniel's God. Notice that it is still Daniel that is the focus of his attention, more than his God. So in 2.47 we had, Surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He looks at Daniel's ability, although of course Daniel would deny he has any ability. By the end of chapter 3, in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar is prepared to move a bit further. 3.28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And 3.29, anyone who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is to be cut up in little pieces. So he's not quite a Christian yet, is he really? I mean, it's not really, you know. And he recognizes that no other God can save in this way. He's impressed with the power more than the person and certainly the character. He's making progress, but he is not there yet. But in chapter 4, he gets there, albeit the hard way. Chapter 4 is really Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's his account of how he came to a personal allegiance to the Most High God, as he calls him. So in verses 1 to 3, this is a kind of broadcast to the nation. You know, it's the equivalent of the Queen's speech, if you like. Everybody's going to get to hear about this. And he tells all his subjects um, who the great God is and what he has done for him. Then in 4 to 18, he tells us of his dream. It's of a great and growing tree that provides both fruit and shade for all. And then a holy one appears and the tree is felled, leaving just a stump. Then, as if to suggest this is about someone, the stump is personified and the person concerned um, goes mad and for seven times or seasons and he lives like a wild animal. Then verse 17, we're told why this is going to happen. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. And in 19 to 27, we have the interpretation offered. Now it's not too difficult to see why the so-called wise men didn't interpret the dream even if they had been able to, they were frightened of the truth. And they were frightened that if they said what they might think, and uh, then it would be the removal of their heads. It's a case of if you don't like the messenger, then uh, if you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. Well, Daniel, though, is not afraid of the truth and is very tactful in the way in which he interprets it for the king. He's not confrontational. Uh, he's not non-confrontational. He is just brutally candid and directive. He treats Nebuchadnezzar as a responsible adult. He, Nebuchadnezzar, is the tree, and the sheltering animals are his empire. He is to lose his throne and will go mad becoming like a wild animal. And he'll stay like that for these seven seasons. Until verse 25, he acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men. 
and gives them to anyone he wishes. He'll get his kingdom back. The stump will grow again when he does. It's not inevitable that that's going to happen. Daniel advises in verse 27, when the king's heard this, and Daniel's given the interpretation, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. It's very often in the case um, that God um, warns us, but we are too proud to change. C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is initially terrified by the dream. He must have had an inkling of its meaning. Somehow the fear wore off and nothing seemed to happen. So he probably relaxed and drifted back into his old ways and attitude. You know, the heat is off. Yeah, maybe I've got away with it. And then it all suddenly becomes a horrible reality in verses 28 to 33. Verse 30. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He's got too big for his boots. He's left God out of the achievements. He's left God out of the purpose. He's taken God's place, in other words, and God is not going to allow that. Nebuchadnezzar has been warned. He's done nothing about it, so the dream becomes an awful reality. Verses 34 to 37 tell of his restoration. But we'll leave that to the end. Let's just look at some of the lessons that we can learn from this sorry saga. To be proud is to be incredibly short-sighted. It's rather like the story of the rich fool that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel. The guy has done well, and he thinks to himself, I'll build even more barns to store all my wealth in. And let's drink and be merry. But that night was his last. I can remember in the 1970s, yeah, I am that old. And um, it was at the time before the Ayatollahs took over Iran. And there was a family friend who was doing a lot of business there and was in becoming incredibly wealthy by it. But Ayatollah Khomeini took over and the Shah was ousted and the guy lost everything. God is in charge of all our destinies. If we think we've achieved it without him and totally for ourselves, we could be in for a very rude awakening. Secondly, we see the living proof of the truth that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He is gentle, there's the dream, there is the warning, and sadly, there had to be the hard lesson. In the New Testament, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor lose courage when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let me just share with you a couple of, um, of stories from people who, uh, you know that when we have baptisms and some confirmations, we uh, get them to write their, their story up. And these are just two from probably 20 years ago, I think. Um, this, is, this is one, a young mother on Riverdean. I'd reached a point in my life, having made one big mistake after another, when I realized that I could not keep blundering on by myself. I'd always been aware of God's presence, but could not find the link between him and me. Being so ashamed of my past, I thought I had blown my chances with him, yet still I longed for that missing something. Or a nurse from the local hospital. Last year, a few months after the breakup of a very meaningful relationship, I began thinking about the purpose of life and what it's all about. I'd realized that my life had a pattern to it, but no ultimate goal. Both had gone through periods of the Lord's discipline before they had given in to him. Whenever the Lord does discipline us, he does always remain close. He is, after all, looking for a positive response. In this case, he is close in the person of Daniel, who interprets the situation for him and gives him advice so that the worst may not happen. And yet still Nebuchadnezzar, like us, so often is too stubborn. Nebuchadnezzar is given time before he comes to his senses. And then we see the graciousness of God. God won't use the proud. He can only use the humble. McShane, a 19th century minister, is most famous for this quote. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. So for Nebuchadnezzar, it's been a gradual process. Too long in many ways, but that's Nebuchadnezzar's fault. But the result of this crisis has been Nebuchadnezzar coming to his senses and coming to faith. Verse 34, I raised my eyes to heaven and my sanity was restored. Psychologists will tell us how vitally important it is for us to be at peace, at peace with ourselves, at peace with those closest to us, and we as Christians would add, and how vital to be at peace with God. So much is down to having the proper perspective. If you're in business, it's having the helicopter view of working out where things are relative to where you are. Whether you're a scientist and searching for the great unifying principle, the proper view of God is the key to everything for everyone. Leave him out and things just don't make sense. Once he humbled himself, Nebuchadnezzar was restored. He'd given God his rightful place. As a result, he was delivered from his aimlessness. He now faced someone greater than he, someone who he could live for, someone for whom his life could revolve around. He was delivered from isolation. He had been hopelessly alone, as in fact we all are if we just pause to think about it. 
everybody around us can be stripped away one way or another. We are ultimately on our own. But he came to his right mind and his relationships were restored with others. Verse 36, my nobles and advisors sought me out. Being delivered from pride, he was able to be used by God. His pride had separated him from God, made him difficult to live with, and made him preoccupied with himself. Verse 36, now God restored him to his throne, and he became even greater than before. Humility is the key to being used by God. I I once knew a man who in some ways was like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, His name was Tony Kimpton, or the Colonel, as he was more affectionately known. I got to know him when I was a curate in Winchester, where he had retired to, and the poor chap was probably hoping to listen to, to decent sermons in his retirement. And he'd given up on the vicar, and he thought the new curate might have a possibility, but... Um, I was well adrift, I'm sure, from his expectations. So he was smart enough. He would, um, he would invite me to take tea with him on a Monday afternoon. And uh, he would have written out, these are the good points and these are the not-so-good points. And the colonel did know something about what a good sermon was. His father-in-law had been the rector of All Souls Langham Place. His son-in-law was the then vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton, and he'd appointed the vicar of St. Helen's Bishopsgate. So he was a good tutor, but he was, he was a real man's man. He scared the daylights out, the vicar, as he did many other people. Now, um, before the war, he'd become a Christian, actually through Crusaders, which is what Urban Saints is now called. And he'd started out in business. During the war, he rose to become a colonel in the Royal Artillery, After the war, his business in the city boomed. As he got better in business, though, he got further from God. He got into women, though he was married, into drinking and into gambling. He was very proud, he told me, of his achievements. I got to learn all this over tea on Monday afternoons. And also when he sort of told the youth group all about it, it's a kind of youth group gathering where... You know, you wheel out this then 87-year-old, and the, you can see across their faces, who is this old codger, that old client? But boy, were they spellbound. Anyway, um, he was uh, very proud of his achievements, and he saw a little need for God. But one night in 1953, he had a dream. He dreamt that he met Jesus Christ. And as he woke up, he was in a cold sweat, He was, as he put it, terrified that he was on the wrong side of Jesus. And he got out of bed and he got on his knees and he prayed and he recommitted himself to the Lord. The next day he cancelled his girlfriends, he cancelled his trip to the races. He even gave up drink for quite a while. He hired a, a university college and he took all his friends away for the weekend to explain to them what had happened to him. Looking around his house a little while later, he noticed that quite a lot of the furniture 
was on loan, which was a kind of euphemism for he nicked it from his time in the army. So he estimated the value of it, and he sent a cheque to the quartermaster general in Whitehall in London, fully expecting the Black Mariahs. That's what police cars were called in those days. Apparently, I was only born in 1953. But instead of the police, he got a letter back from the quartermaster general with a cheque for five pounds because they thought that he had overestimated the value of what he'd nicked. He then went to do a great work with Crusaders and uh, the South American Missionary Society, and he was a church commissioner and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he started a, a lunchtime meeting in the city for other businessmen. He would personally invite 200, and if they didn't come, his secretary would send them a transcript of the Bible study that uh, they'd been given. After a while, he, he realized he really needed a sort of permanent venue for this. And it dawned on him that he was a member of the Merchant Tailors Company in the city. And they were the patrons of a church that was virtually empty, St. Helen's Bishopsgate, where he got himself to be the church warden. And he appointed Dick Lucas to be the rector. And that was the start of much of the very influential and beneficial work that that church has done, not least in providing us with our current two curates. And uh, all the, the, the modern accommodation associated that, with that church, which most people wouldn't know, was paid for by the colonel in memory of his uh, eldest daughter, who was killed in a car accident. So he wasn't without uh, suffering in his life. And uh, but he was the kind of person who could uh, certainly square up to archbishops and prime ministers. He, uh, one, one of his son-in-laws had a curate called David Watson, who if you're of a certain age you'll remember, and he was looking for a university town where he could set up a student work. And so the colonel sort of bumped into Donald Coggan. Well, he didn't bump into him. He would have designed to actually meet him on some committees. And he comes up to Donald Coggan, the Archbishop of York, said, Archbishop, have you got a sort of, sort of vacant church going in a sort of university town in the north of England? Oh, I don't think so. Oh, yes, you have. You see, the colonel had done his homework, and he found that this place called St. Cuthbert's in York was empty. And so this guy got appointed there. On another occasion, um, in the days before the Church of England had any say in who the bishops were, um, the Prime Minister did it all. He had a word with the Prime Minister, told him who he should appoint to a particular place. The person was, in fact, invited very shortly afterwards, so he turned it down, as he did all subsequent offers to be a bishop. So, uh, here was a man in many ways, like Nebuchadnezzar, aware of God, but once with personal success, becoming proud and forgetting God. He became full of his own importance, and he went right off the rails. But through an encounter with Jesus Christ, he was humbled again, and greatly made up for lost time in the Lord's service.
Now that can be true of any of us, however far away we may have drifted. It could even be true for one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, people in history who can illustrate for us through their lives uh, the truth of what your prophets and apostles tell us. And we thank you that uh, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar has doubtless been repeated many times, if on a smaller scale, in the lives of many, many people. May we learn from these lessons and neither drift away nor get inflated egos. And should we be in danger of doing so, may we come to our senses. Amen.